Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, cultural enrichment, and all-inclusive fares. Discover more at viking.com. Some topics that land on the cover of Barron's go well beyond finances. This week we highlighted the opioid crisis in America. The cost to humans and families have been tragically clear for so many years, but the issue is really only starting to get real attention from financial markets. And as lawyers, investors, and courts get involved, we're about to get more answers about who's to blame for the crisis and how we can hopefully avoid other tragedies in the future. I'm Alex Yule. This week on The Readback, I'm joined by Barron's healthcare reporter, Josh Nathan Kazis, who just wrote our cover story on the opioid reckoning. Hey, Josh. Hey. So the opioid crisis has been brewing for, for many years now, and it's really not one that we've covered all that closely. Why are we starting to talk about it now? There's been a lot of developments over the last couple of weeks in the sprawling litigation between cities, counties, and states on the one hand, and corporations on the other hand that were part of the pharmaceutical supply chain that got opioid pills to pharmacy counters. We begin with breaking news, a verdict in a case that could set the stage for dozens, maybe hundreds of new lawsuits against pharmaceutical companies. In the first state opioid case to make it to trial, a judge in Oklahoma late today ruled Johnson & Johnson helped fuel the state's opioid crisis. Purdue Pharma filing for bankruptcy. The company makes OxyContin, a drug fueling the opioid crisis. Uh, this is a report from Bloomberg um, saying that Mallinckrodt may choose to seek bankruptcy protection if its legal liabilities aren't manageable. And these legal liabilities, of course, have to do with the opioid lawsuits that are happening around the country right now. Drug makers, Endo International and Allergan have reached settlements to avoid going to trial over the opioid crisis. CBC's Meg Terrell. The, the big news coming up and the kind of thing that investors should be looking towards is this trial coming up in October, a proceeding that's brought together actually 2,000 separate lawsuits against various drug companies. The nation's largest opioid trial right here in Cleveland is still moving full steam ahead. Cuyahoga and Summit counties are accusing more than a dozen companies of pushing opioids despite knowing the risks what they call a bellwether trial, a chance for both sides to test out their arguments. And it's going to give investors and observers a real sense of how settlements and future trials are going to play out. And as this trial comes closer, just give us a little bit of a reminder what all the backdrop is for, for how we got here. Sure, yeah. I mean, as you alluded to at the top of the show, there's been this brewing opioid crisis in the United States. You know, it started in the 1990s when a company called Purdue Pharma introduced a drug called OxyContin, which was an extended release pill that delivered oxycodone, a powerful opioid. And the drug was widely prescribed. It was uh, said to be safe, and it led to a real explosion in the prescription of, of, of these opioid drugs. I mean, you can see the results in the opioid overdose rates in this country. They've gone from about three people per 100,000 dying of opioid overdoses in 2000 to 15 per 100,000 in 2017, which is you know, a five-fold increase nationwide. And the crisis has really had a tremendous impact on small towns in the Appalachia to you know, parts of New York City. Okay, so come October, we have these trials that are sort of going to be a way of trying to assess the blame and how we got here, right? I mean, can we even unpack that? Is there a way to do that? So 
Let's take a step back here. This litigation has been brought about largely because thousands of cities and counties across the country have decided to bring these lawsuits. And they've, they've brought the opioid lawsuits against three sort of categories of company. You have the drug makers, both, you know, branded drug makers like Johnson & Johnson, generic drug makers like Mallinckrodt and Teva. Then you have the distributors. And these are the companies that buy drugs from the drug companies and sell them to PBMs or pharmacies. And then you have the pharmacies. You'll find that actually the pharmacies that were distributing the highest volumes of pills, these were mostly independent pharmacies. Okay. Um, but the lawsuits have really focused on the big pharmacy companies. So you have CVS Health, Walgreens, for example. And I'm guessing that um, they don't all agree on who, who's to blame. No, and look, I mean, I think that the, the basic defense that all these companies raise, and it's an important one to consider, is that they were providing pills that help people, that were legally prescribed, that were approved by the FDA. You know, the DA is involved here, too, because these are, you know, scheduled narcotics. And this is a highly regulated industry. And, you know, if you sort of talk to the individual companies, they all have particular areas that they'll direct blame, you know. So part of what happened here is that it's not like one company made sold and distributed, you know, the pills on their own. Like, this was uh, an industry that involved a huge diversity of players, and, you know, they are now all sort of pointing to each other and say, we didn't do this on our own. Right. It's not our responsibility. We were highly regulated. And yet, if you talk to some of these people in communities, which you did, you talked to a public health advocate in Staten Island, and, and she called it a corporate-induced disease. Yeah, and she was sort of comparing it to obesity these are, you know, public health phenomena that are a result of corporations, you know, seeking profit. Right. So what these lawsuits are trying to do is to hold the companies accountable for what the plaintiffs say they did and get money for the states and cities and counties that have seen, you know, extraordinary costs as a result of the opioid crisis. And is there any sense of how much money we're even talking about here? So... You know, Wall Street analysts have put a huge range of numbers on this, you know, bare case estimates of like $150 billion tops altogether for all the companies put together. Meaning but worst case scenario. Worst case from the perspective of someone who doesn't want the companies to pay a lot of money. <laughs> Good point. <laughs> but the fact of the matter is when, when you're talking about litigation and the outcome of litigation, any guess you make is really a guess. Right. Say there's a, a decision, a court decision, someone could appeal, someone else could appeal, could go to bankruptcy court, like... This is enormously complicated. Your story gets at this tension that we're now seeing between folks who are really seeking justice and then others who maybe are more interested in seeking compensation. Tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, so you sort of, you, know, you have two categories of, of attorneys who are involved here. On the one hand, you have the state attorneys general who are working on behalf of the states. These are politicians. They're elected. And, you know, I think the perception of them, especially among the plaintiff's attorneys, is that some of them want to, you know, exact revenge and win political points. You can see some of that in their press releases and in the sort of tone that they're taking. And then on the other hand, you have the attorneys who are representing the cities and counties, and these are plaintiff's attorneys, you know, working on a contingency basis, and they just want to get money for their clients. And I think, you know, from their perspective, bankruptcies are complicating factors and will make it harder to just like get the money. Right. And we already have seen something of this with the Purdue pharmaceutical bankruptcy, right? That's been a controversial decision, not 
Some might see it as a win. Others see it very much as not a win. Yeah. So, so, so the Purdue bankruptcy was negotiated with the attorneys for the cities and counties. They, they did want that. Um, produce kind of a separate case. But the tension you're talking about is, is clear. The state attorneys general, some of them did go along with it, but a big group of them didn't. And some of them are now opposed to the filing and opposing the settlement. And they want more money. And they think that they can get more money by going after the the owners of Purdue more aggressively. Right. Because in some cases, this bankruptcy, as, as bad as bankruptcy sounds, could also be seen as sort of getting off too easy. I think that that is how the state attorneys general see it in, in many cases. Not all of them, but some of them. So we have this super complicated issue here. To what degree is what happened with Big Tobacco and what they went through? Since June 20, 1997, more than half a million people have died of tobacco-related illnesses, and one and a half million children have become addicted to tobacco. Where there was this master settlement basically across the country. The attorney generals have now before them a tobacco settlement proposal that would provide the states with $206 billion through the year 2025, the largest financial recovery in the history of the world. And this is like 20 years later, basically. Is that a model for what could happen here? Well, no. So in fact, Big Tobacco, the deal they reached with the states, that money was split up among the states. And and there's been a lot of reporting over the years about how much of that money just sort of went into general state coffers and didn't actually go to, you know, paying for the expenses that smoking had incurred on, on the states. So this time around, the cities and counties wanted to go on their own. They didn't trust the states to fairly distribute an opioid settlement. Okay. So that's why they've gotten their own attorneys, their own private attorneys, and aren't you know, necessarily playing ball with the state attorneys general. And I guess one really big difference here with big tobacco versus the opioid, the players in the opioid issue is that big tobacco basically did one thing, right? They made cigarettes, they made tobacco. The players that are involved and the drug makers that are involved here certainly don't just make opioids. I think one of the considerations, if you create substantial liabilities for some of these companies, that some of them would say you would, you would make it harder for certain services to be delivered. I mean, And some of these treatments, of course, are things that we take for granted in our healthcare system. Like our generic drug supply, you know, Teva Pharmaceuticals and, and Endo Pharmaceuticals make, in Malincrop, make a huge range of generic drugs. And um, it is, uh, people rely on those drugs. And Cardinal, uh, the distribution company, distributes a huge proportion of the drugs distributed in this country. And, you know, them being able to do that at this point is, like, pretty important to all of us getting our antibiotics on time. So these are companies that are involved in a huge range of activities. Opioids are sort of a part of it. Yeah. There are some exceptions, of course, like Purdue, which is a private company. Sort of their main drug was OxyContin. One of the things that I thought was also very interesting in your story was kind of looking forward as to how additional regulation or settlements, judgments against some of those distributors that you've talked about could really serve to change the business and change business models going forward. Um, you even mentioned Amazon in there. Tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, so you know, drug distribution is an interesting industry. There's like three companies that dominate it here. You know, the margins are very low. The logistics are very complicated. The infrastructure you need is tremendous, and it's highly regulated. So the idea has always been like no one else would ever want to get in there. But Amazon, you know, they, they bought this mail order pill company called PillPack. And since then, there's been like a little bit of concern or speculation that they may want to disrupt drug distribution. And there's an analyst who made the point in a note uh, a few weeks ago 
that one potential outcome of the litigation, if part of the settlement requires a lot more oversight or regulation on behalf of the distributors, you know, increase their cost of doing business, like could open open the window a little bit wider for someone like Amazon to get involved. So it's possible that in addition to seeking justice, to seeking funds for these affected communities, that really this opioid crisis that you spend so much time talking about could really change the way drug companies do business going forward. Look, I, th- I think that the, the opioid crisis has, has had a really enormous effect on communities, on individuals. A big settlement is not going to fix things. There's no fixing things. Looking forward, I think one could imagine that the drug companies moving forward, if they really do suffer because of wh- whatever the judgment or settlement ends up being, would approach the marketing of dangerous or potentially dangerous drugs differently. And, and that that could have a big impact. I mean, marketing is a big part of this business. All right, Josh. Well, this was really fascinating, and it really gave us a new way to think about the topic, I think. So thanks so much. Thank you. To read Josh's cover story on the opioid crisis, check out this week's edition of Barron's, or as always, Barron's.com. I'm Alex Ewell. The show is produced by Meta Lutzhoft. The Readback will return next Wednesday.